As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What up, everybody? It's the Preachers of Secrets podcast. We're back at it again with a conversation with my good buddy, Jonathan Merritt. Jonathan's a contributing writer for The Atlantic, as well as a contributing editor for The Week, and author of several books, including Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing, and How We Can Revive Them. Overall, he's had more than 3,500 articles published in all the major outlets, including The New York Times, Washington Post, and all the major TV news networks. And he's a sought-after speaker around the world. Not only is he an accomplished writer and speaker, but he's also a fellow podcaster and also has a very strong Twitter and Instagram game, which is basically how we met. I absolutely loved our conversation. And while I'm still looking up some of the words he used, I think it will be a great listen for you, regardless of your involvement in Christian culture. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jonathan Merritt. Yeah, I've, I've I've been watching some of your interviews on uh, on YouTube, and it seems like you've had some experience with all of the talking heads. Yeah, you know, there. So I would hope I've only had one that I felt I really got duped. Um, there was like, oh, yeah, really? there was like some reformed something or other, and um, they they contacted me through a publicist and requested an interview about one thing. And then they started asking, and I, and I was literally, I was on vacation, on family vacation, and I stepped away. And the thing that they wanted to do the interview on, it was on my book and the sample questions, it was all super like straightforward. And then they mm-hmm. just started pounding me with like random theology questions. And they're like poking at me and making jokes. And it was, it was bizarre. Oh, it was the it was the three dudes. I watched that one this morning. I'm pretty sure the three guys they started talking about evangelism, evangelizing to Donald yeah, Trump. yeah, yeah, yeah. And the guys like pretending to be Donald Trump. It was so weird. It was bizarre. so. If I had had you know, if I was not in vacation mode, maybe actually, if I'd known anything about it, I would have just said no. But um, it was after the fact. I think it was a it was a good learning experience. Just to be like, you know, mm-hmm. maybe do a little research before you say yes to things. Um, yeah. Because, <laughs> like, you, I'm sure you were pumped, like, hey, I'm getting the word out regardless of, of the outlet, but maybe this would have been one to maybe do a little research before. Well, it was like, so it was that- super friendly. And then the request was super the friendly. And then in the beginning of the interview, they were like, hey, man, just we, we just want to be like, it was all very super cool language. And then, like, literally, mm-hmm. they hit record. And it was like Jekyll to Hyde. It, you know, it was just weird. I wish I would have, in hindsight, I wish I would have said it in the interview to say, I just want all of your listeners to know how this went down. Um, right. But I was so... That's kind of cheap journalism. Yeah. Or whatever well, I mean, it's, it's you know, people want clicks. I get that. And yeah. when you're not like a legitimate outlet, you're just, you're just throwing red meat to it you know, a niche. I, I, I get it. I know what they're doing. I, I just wish I would have known what they were doing for it. Took that anyway, but life goes <laughs> yeah, on, you know, it's sure. funny. It's funny. I think they had like 5,000 views or something, which I guess is big for them. But for me, it's like, hmm. move on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it seems like, uh, you, some, you, you find yourself in those situations every once in a while. Like I, I was watching some of, I mean, a lot of the stuff that you were, that you've been featured on, and you seem pretty bold in like wanting to attack pretty tough issues head on. Like for me, trying to relate to you, it's like I'm very much a people pleaser, mm-hmm. very much want everyone to be mm-hmm. happy. And for on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, it seems like you're 
pretty open to like attack some of the toughest uh, hot topics right now. Like, do you find, does that affect you at all? Or is it just like, do you get energy from kind of stirring debate like that? You know, for me, it's, it's a question of vocation. So I don't think that everyone is, uh, is sort of called to engage with kind of issues the way I do. But when mm-hmm. I coach authors and kind of personalities, people come to me and they're like, hey, help me. I want to write a book or I want to put out something. I always take them through this exercise where I make them imagine themselves as the best version of themselves. So I'll say to them something like, think about yourself when you're more you than you've ever been in your life. What are three adjectives that would describe you in that moment? And for me, as I've discerned that, uh, the three adjectives that I kept returning to were thoughtful, courageous, and provocative. And it doesn't mean that I provoke for the sake of provocation. Rather, I see myself because I've always been untethered from an institution, right? I don't work for a university. I don't work for a church. I don't work for a think tank. I don't work for a politician. So there's no risk of kickback for me. That gives me a kind of freedom to ask questions others are afraid to ask and to wrestle with things imperfectly in a way that others maybe can't because uh, of the positions they find themselves in. So one of the most common things I hear from readers and listeners and followers is they'll like DM me and they'll say something like, thank you for saying this. This is what I wish I could say, or thank you for giving voice to the thing I feel, but I don't feel free to, to post online. And so I, I think that that prov- provocation as a tool is a way to get people to wrestle with things that I think they need to wrestle with. So for me, I'm always more concerned with getting people to wrestle with the right questions than I am with presenting them or spoon feeding them the perfect answer. Because I don't know that I always have the perfect right. answer, but I think that the questions I'm raising are really good questions that we should be wrestling with. And have you found that, that you've d- dug yourself in any holes that are like, too deep or exhausting to work through. I mean, cause you're pretty, you're pretty active mm-hmm. on Twitter and I'm, I'm impressed with your Twitter game. In a lot of ways you do say things that maybe I wish I could say too, or I haven't thought through fully. Mm-hmm. Um, do you find that like there are certain times where that's too exhausting or it's like, dude, I, I just can't even go down this road. Yes. With um, I, I find, you know, uh, particularly when people, people will get personal um, or they will, um, drag my family into it. That happens a lot. You know, my dad is a, is a kind of a prominent religious leader in his own right. He's an author. He's a megachurch pastor. He was the president of the Southern Baptist convention. And so when people will sort of sling these barbs at me and, and they'll talk about, they'll project what they think my dad thinks about me, which, you know, as a, as an Enneagram three, cuts it cuts that cuts deep you know the notion that they would raise they would sort of speak into your life that you're not uh, accepted or you don't have the approval of people in your life that you care so deeply about that you love and so i've really been nurturing and cultivating in my life the spiritual discipline of muting uh i just mute people (laughs) with reckless uh abandon you know i am i am a one shot and you're done. There was a recently, there was a, um, there was a, uh, and, and by the way, it has served me well. I'm sure there are a small sliver of people that I had a knee jerk reaction that maybe wasn't warranted, but with the two or 3000 people that I have probably muted, it has been so good for my sanity and such Mm -hmm. an expression of, of, of healthy self care that. Cause that's about the only control that you can have over that. The, The thing about social media is that everyone gets access to your psyche in some way. Like if you don't mute them, then they essentially can comment their piece and potentially you get. Yeah. And people, people actually now feel they have a right to have access to your thread. Like they have a right Right. to say whatever they want to say and to be heard by you. And even more than that, they think they have a right to say whatever they want to say to be heard by you, often to do it under the veil of anonymity. You know, it's like an egg uh, right. avatar. 
and to have you respond. (laughs) So there are people who will then start trolling you because they'll say, I've been saying these things to you and you're not responding. And it's like, you know, my social media, it's not a democracy. It's a dictatorship. And uh, if if you are attempting to troll me in any way, you're done. And uh, I don't think that that's living in an echo chamber, because if you see my friend group, my community, the people I actually live alongside, these are people that I have deep disagreements with and they have permission to speak honestly into my life. So people who say, you know, yeah, you need to hear criticism. I absolutely agree. But the question is, is where is the ideal place to receive criticism? I am sorry. Social media is not the ideal place uh, to receive criticism. Oftentimes, it is the worst place to do it. The place to do it is in flesh-on-flesh lived experience with people who know you, who you trust, and who you know love you and are for you and with you. And uh, so I don't live in an echo chamber, but my Twitter feed is just not the place where I do that. Yeah, and that's. I think that's, I mean, that that was going to be my follow-on question about like, do you feel like you're creating an echo chamber for yourself? But uh, at risk of sounding kind of hypocritical, uh, because I'm the I'm behind this Preachers and Seekers account, like criticism should come from people that actually know you and know your like your full situation. I think a lot of people aren't living in a community like that. I'm I'm blessed enough to to have people around me too that can kind of say, "Hey, you're being an idiot," or like here's the truth behind what you're thinking and feeling about these things. And you shouldn't believe this lie or, or that lie. And I think people, Christians specifically are losing out big time if they're living a life without people like that in their lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I totally agree with that. So on that note, uh, we, we kind of uh, have some mutual friends um, and indirectly you're kind of at fault for this whole account going viral. <laughs> yeah. Like, like Audrey, Seth Jones, uh, Annie F. Downs, who I only really know through Instagram now. But um, can you kind of talk me through what led you to mention the whole Preachers and Seekers account to begin with? Because you kind of mentioned it very well, early on. And I don't want to do this to like to toot my own horn, but it, it was a significant yeah, so, thing so in causing the whole it's, discussion. It's kind of a funny story. Um, I was speaking at a conference in Baltimore um, and I got very ill. And I was supposed to go to DC after that, but I came home because uh, I switched my mm. train ticket. I'm like, I, I could feel myself, you know, when you, you know, you're about to get really sick. And I got back, I went to urgent care mm. and they said, you have pre pneumonia and you need to get in bed, stay in bed and you need to, you're out for the next week. And I literally couldn't get out of bed for probably, let's see, that was Saturday. I probably didn't get out of bed till Wednesday, Thursday, but, uh, on Saturday, I believe, I got a, um, a text. I'm in a text thread with some pastor friends and a well-known, another, you know, kind of writer, author. And this writer, mm-hmm. she she sent your account over and said, oh, my gosh, have you guys seen this? This is crazy. <laughs> and, you know, there was like 3,000 followers, whatever. And I'm sitting yeah. here thinking, like, I'm going to be in bed for five days. And so I wrote back and I said, wouldn't it be crazy if we could just make this thing blow up? and start a conversation. Like, wouldn't that just be so weird and crazy? And so I started putting like a little mini. I mean, really, it was weird. So I just started putting it out on social media. And then, you know, I have a lot of friends who are journalists, you know, Buzzfeed and, uh, you, you know, Whitney at fashionista, we go to church together and my friend. Yeah, really? She's She's amazing. I love her. Uh, my friend Scott uh, at Esquire, who's now in LA, but he used to go to church with me here, who wrote a piece on this. And yeah, I uh, so I just started kind of shooting this out to people. And uh, of course, Jamie Torkowski, a very good friend I was with this weekend, who who championed it. So I just started shooting it around mm-hmm. to people and thought, wow, how crazy. Like, this is a conversation that that needs to be happening. Like, we should like, you know, like, like boost the antenna on this. And uh, not that it's wow. not that that I did it or I can claim credit for doing it because that's not the case. But I think sometimes you just have to reach critical mass and it kind of pushes the boulder off that kind of snowballs as it rolls down the hill. And I think there were a few of us that initially saw this and thought we saw this and we thought, well, this, this is really interesting. And this is something that, 
that people should be talking about. And so we all kind of pushed it out there. And then on the wings of the masses, this thing became a quote thing. Right. <laughs> the, uh, I, my wife is, is pretty sick of me talking about, uh, cause I'm, I'm in full-time grad school right now and she'll kind of ask me what I've been doing for the day. It's like, Oh, other than leading a cultural, a worldwide cultural movement, not much, <laughs> which is probably a little strong, but, um, well, I guess, uh, thank you, uh, for completely changing my life without my consent, um, consent, <laughs> but it has been, it has been really interesting. It has been important. And I, I, uh, underestimated how strongly people were going to feel about this, but, um, I, I appreciate it. And I think it has caused some good to happen regardless of kind of the harassment and some negativity around it. Like I'm totally aware of that, but I think there has been some good that's come from it. And it kind of leads to this like bigger topic of celebrity mm-hmm. pastors, kind of cultural alignment in Christian culture um, so the, the topic of celebrity preachers and pastors wearing expensive sneakers seems to cause most of the people who follow my account, some amount of uneasiness, um, including me, but they can't really put a finger on it. Like why, why this caught, stirs up so much angst in so many people. But on the flip side, there's objectively a lot of good that these churches are doing in the world and lives that are seemingly uh, being changed. And what would, what would you say to people as someone who's incredibly well-read, has a multiple degrees, is a well-known writer and speaker. What would you say to those people feeling that uneasiness? And what do you think caused Well, I would that? say good. Uh, tension <laughs> is often um, the womb, uh, the, 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 the mechanism of gestation for the birth mm. of new ways of being and thinking. And we don't like it, but we need it. You know, what, what I love about what you're doing is it's not black and white. It's not dualism. It's not look how bad this right. person is or look how good I am or look at, you know, you're, you're not dividing the world neatly into two halves. What you're doing is, is you're presenting a tension and calling people to live in that tension. And what that, what that does is, is when we feel discomfort, we're sort of thrown off kilter and it forces us rather than simply go back to our well-worn presuppositions about the way the world is or should be. It causes us to look anew at the world that is and to ask questions about how it should be, to live in that tension between is and ought. And so when you're making people live to confront the is-ness of life, it raises all kinds of questions about oughtness. Ought a pastor to make three times as much as the median income of his or her congregation? Ought a pastor to wear shoes that uh, cost as much as the average parishioner's income for a whole month? Uh, Ought uh, a pastor, a spiritual leader, to give the impression that those that God blesses have material wealth when you know that the majority of people who are recipients of that message, if current trends persist, will never achieve that kind of wealth? What does this say about the nature of blessing or the way that God blesses? And these are important questions. And, you know, I think people who don't want to think critically are the ones who misunderstand this project, I believe. Because they say, look what you're doing, you're demonizing these pastors. And that's not at all what you're doing. Look, I, I, I like nice shoes. Any of my friends will tell you, I like nice shoes, I like nice clothes, I like nice things. I work very hard. I've seen you, I've seen you have some nice Comme de Garçon. I do, Comme de Garçon, I love my common projects. I've got some Givenchy shoes, I have to say. Um, I, I, I like nice <laughs> shoes, I work very hard to pay for those things. And I'm not a pastor, which, which pulls some of that out. And yet I think Mm. there, I've had to wrestle with it. Um, I've had to wrestle with as a person who sort of, uh, is called to represent the Christian witness in some way, whether I'm really uh, a living embodiment of something I don't even believe. And so I think that that calling us to enter into these spaces of tension is a good thing. These are good questions. These are questions we should be asking. And unfortunately, 
you have a lot of fragile white men who uh, who simply want to live their lives without uh, they want to preach with their words and not think about the sermons of their lives. And I just think that that you just don't get to do that. Do you think it's uh, a fair judgment, though, to say, like, these guys and girls aren't living with their lives? Like, so I think Erwin McManus was quick to say that he's given away maybe more money than anybody else that I've, I've posted. You know, people will bring up the, the ratio of like, say he made, he gave away $8 million and kept a million dollars. Is the criticism still valid or are we just being short-sighted in that like, okay, he's wearing expensive shoes. So, he must be profiting off the gospel and and not helping the poor. You know, community. it depends it, it, where you end up will will often depend on where you start. Um, you know, I think if you have a Ron Sider esque perspective, you know, rich Christians in the age of hunger, he would say that there's a certain amount of money people need to live comfortably, and beyond that, you give away everything, and that's the Christian way. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you accept that then you're going to end up one place. If you have a different view, you know, if you, if you're, I have a lot of friends who are more charismatic and they say, no, we don't need to have a theology of scarcity. We need a theology of abundance, which is to say that if God gives you one thing, it doesn't mean God isn't giving to someone else. So you're not hoarding what could be given away. Um, I think that these are all legitimate perspectives that we need to wrestle with. Uh, the thing that bothers me most about that is that a, a pastor like Irwin feels the need when attacked to brag about his own generosity, which really challenges uh, the notion of whether it is, in fact, generosity at all. Um, if it, it, you know, that once you, and there's a sort of weird passage in the Bible uh, that, that like if you receive credit here on earth, then you don't get credit in heaven. But I think the deeper mm-hmm. meaning of that, if you kind of uh, demythologize that, is the notion that generosity has this eternal significance by nature. And if you, if you uh, do it for the sake of receiving accolades in the here and now, it robs it of that eternal value. It, it actually ceases to be generosity at all. So I, I'm more mm-hmm. bothered uh, that someone would feel the need to sort of beat their chest, to create a hierarchy, to say, look, I'm so much better than these other pastors, which to me speaks to the deep, deeper problem. Oftentimes, people are wearing these expensive clothes as an ex- external expression of their own deeper insecurities, right? So it says, look how pretty I am. Look how stylish I am. Look how put together I am. Uh, look how successful I am. And, and yeah. the clothing, the shoes, for example, is just an expression of the deeper problem. And so when somebody then counters uh, that, when you unmask that, and then they go to, look how generous I am, what you're seeing is really just another symptom of what seems to me to be a consistent illness, uh, pastoral insecurity. Do you think that's uh, that's a really great answer. Do you think that's a... F- a fair criticism though, based purely off of looking at Instagram. So like I I get criticism every day about like, you don't know these guys, you have no idea what they do in the world. You, I mean, I've talked to several of them too. Like you don't know who gave me these. You don't know how much I paid for these. Is it still a valid criticism to say their outfits are a deeper um, expression of an insecurity or of something that, is very much deeper going on within them based off just... Yeah, you know, I, I, the, I think of that verse in Scripture, the heart of man or the heart of humans um, is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. But yeah. So I wouldn't say <laughs> all, it, that it is, but I would say it could be, or it seems it might be. But what the questions that you're raising are multifaceted. It's whack-a-mole. Yeah. So, you know, somebody somebody diffuses the bomb on uh, on the money side of things. Well, there are still other questions. There's the nature of blessing. 
there's the there is uh, the nature of Christian witness and how Christian witness becomes uh, conflated with a kind of um, aesthetic style and whether that's good or or true or healthy. So you know mm. the problem with people's counter arguments uh, to this movement, and I think it's what's given this movement legs, is that the questions are multiplicitous. And they continue to evade you. So as soon as you knock down one of the 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 questions that this raises, you're faced with a hundred more, and that's why you yeah. end up with pastors who get very very uh, upset, and 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 then they end up you know like blocking you or or something. Yeah, they've absolutely done that. But do you think that we're kind of putting them, or me specifically? Do you think that I'm putting them in an unfair position? Because like I guess putting myself in their shoes, if, if someone's saying, Hey, look at this asshole that's wearing these $2,000 shoes. He's not doing anything for his community yet. I, in fact, have given $10 million away. Uh, is it unfair to expect them not to try to say like, okay, well we have given a ton of money away. Or I guess, I guess, I guess I wonder what the correct response for them should well, be like a lot of them have been completely silent. And then a lot of them have over indexed probably yeah. saying, well, these are all the great things I've done. What do you I, think I don't know that? the answer, but I'll give you a possible answer. Uh, okay. I'd borrow from uh, the epistle of James chapter three, verse one, not many of you should become teachers or should desire to become teachers because you know yeah. that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Uh, I'm sorry, but it's a workplace hazard. You don't, you don't get to stand up in, on a stage in front of thousands of people spewing your opinions and theology, uh, expressing things with your life, and then say, yeah, now you don't get to actually weigh in on anything I said. You just get to take it. You just get to consume it. That's not how mm -hmm. this works. That's uh, that is, I think, an expression of how um, celebrity culture and capitalism in America has fused together with ecclesiology. So it's it makes sense that they feel that way, that they get all the benefits of pastoring and preaching, and they and they just want to skirt around the difficulties and the liabilities. Uh, but I reject that. I don't think that that's true. When you yeah. open your mouth to preach, somebody can stand up and say, that's hurtful, that's harmful. And um, that's what happens when you speak, um, is that people can offer a counterpoint. And you also speak with your life. And when you're speaking with your life as a teacher, as somebody who has set themselves up as a man or a woman of God, a, a representative of the good news of the gospel, when you speak with your life in a certain way, somebody can say, yeah, I don't think that you should be cheating on your spouse, or I don't think mm -hmm. that you should be uh, uh, living in such a way that gives the impression that to be in God's favor is to be wealthy. Um, somebody has a right to also bring that up. That doesn't mean they're right, but when you you know when you get upset because uh, your monologue becomes dialogue, to me that is less an expression of your own victimhood and more an expression of your own fragility. Dang! Wow, that's I mean that's pretty powerful, and I I haven't gotten any. Thing close to that. Yeah, well, point. let me tell you, I, I have the unique, I'm in the unique position that a lot of the people that you've posted about on your account, a lot of the people who you would possibly post about on your account, I've, I've been mm -hmm. with them in personal settings. And I mm -hmm. will tell you that the evangelical megachurch pastor as an animal is one of the, and I'm generalizing, one of the most emotionally unhealthy creatures walking planet Earth. Um, what I can't figure out is whether this this new um, this new uh, creation that we call the megachurch actually creates that animal, whether it shapes them into that or whether it actually attracts that. You know, there was a dissertation done 
I believe at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School years ago that studied, uh, I believe it studied seminary students. And what it showed is, is that, that the average person aspiring to be a pastor had a higher than normal incidence of narcissistic personality disorder. In other words, hmm. it takes a kind of person to even aspire to growing a church of thousands where people will come and listen to them, where they'll sit in a green room, where they'll be admired by people. It takes a kind of person uh, to aspire to that. Um, that's, that's interesting to me. I think we should get curious about that. Now, what I'm not saying is, is that all of these megachurch pastors, because they wear nice sneakers, are necessarily narcissists, are necessarily emotionally right. unhealthy. I'm simply making an observation that there is a level of unhealth created in these environments, particularly involving these individuals and leaders oftentimes, and that yeah. those of us who care about the church, those of us who care about these leaders, those of us who care about these parishioners, those of us who care about the Christian witness in the 21st century, those of us who care about whether the church in its current state will indeed survive this moment of transformation that we're living in, should be willing to find the courage to wrestle with these questions. And what bothers right. me is people who fancy themselves so courageous on stage often end up being lacking so much courage online. Hey, yo, what up? This episode of the Preachers and Seekers podcast is brought to you by Rejuvenator Shoe Care. If you're like me and only have a few pairs of kicks, you got to be keeping those fresh at all times. My favorite pair of sneaks are my triple wide ultra boost and they're an absolute dirt magnet. But Rejuvenator provides everything I could possibly need to keep those kicks mega clean and at a reasonable price. All my listeners can get 10% off their whole order by using the code PREACHERS at checkout. So check them out at rejuvenator.com and be sure to use the code PREACHERS for 10% off. In order to grow an organization like that, doesn't it take some form, like to be a public speaker, if you want to be that, you have to be the type of person that gets energy from speaking and having responses from a large group. Isn't that the same of a megachurch pastor? Like surely there aren't very many megachurch senior pastors or leaders that are terrified of public speaking. Like it seems like that would be an easy thing to fall into if you're the type of person, kind of like me, like I like to public speak. I get energy out of entertaining and performing. Um, you know, you know here's, here, I'll, I'll, I'll start with a, with a basic principle of human nature which is that our greatest weakness is also often our greatest strength. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. my dad is a megachurch pastor, and he's, I know his life inside and out, and I can tell you I'm lucky he's one of the good ones. But he's not, he's not yeah. perfect. And, you know, I think he would tell you this if he were on this podcast, that his, one of his greatest strengths is his loyalty. He is so loyal. Those people who are yeah. on his staff know that, they, they don't sit around wondering if he's going to come in, have a bad day and fire them. He's, he's loyal. Mm -hmm. He's also loyal to a fault. There are times where there have been people in his inner circle over the years that have embezzled, that have uh, overstayed their own usefulness uh, because they were, they were not doing their job or they were doing their job improperly. And he's just so loyal that it's both his greatest strength and his greatest weakness. He would tell you one of the reasons that his ministry, that he believes that his ministry would have had even far greater impact if he had had the courage to overcome that sense of loyalty and let people go sooner, toxic people in his inner circle. Yeah. I think the same thing is true. There are so many people who are so moved, moved even to the point of conversion, uh, by the the these powerful messages delivered to arena-sized crowds. And yet that great strength mm -hmm. is often its great weakness because it takes a kind of egotism to even believe that you're capable of doing that. So, so to wrestle right. with these questions is to admit something that really I think most of us don't want to admit, which is that pastors are as imperfect as their parishioners. Yeah. The the one the biggest thing that surprised me after kind of learning about this whole culture, because I, I mean, I'm 
being from only the South, I didn't really understand how church was done on the West and the East Coast. Um, but the big thing that surprised me, I think the, the most surprising thing to me was that a lot of these guys truly don't have any elders around them. Are you aware of things like that? So like apparently at Elevation, it's just Stephen and Holly Furtick up there and there's no elders. Yeah, and in, in, in fact, at, uh, I've done some some reporting on Furtick over the years, another another leader who seems to be very, uh, very fragile in his own leadership style, also very powerful mm. communicator on the positive side. Yeah. Uh, they have an external board of elders made up of basically all of his buddies. Now, um, hmm. that is, in my opinion, uh, it gives the appearance of accountability without accountability. And so when you have these pastor led, um, polities, ecclesiologies, um, the only way it works is if the leader is benevolent, if the leader is of high character or of high enough mm -hmm. character to survive the day. But what, what often ends up happening, of course, I write about some of these figures in my, in my book, Learning to Be God from Scratch. I've done a lot of uh, reporting online. You, you think about Mark Driscoll. You think about people yeah. like uh, James McDonald. Um, these are leaders who, who their own character flaws were such that the, the pastor-led model was the perfect model for them to create a maximum amount of harm among a maximum amount of people. So, you know, I live now at an uh, Episcopal seminary. That's where I'm talking to you from right now, the oldest Episcopal seminary. Oh, I've been there. Oh, yeah. Okay. I, uh, I met with Michael Smith, who lived there. He used to work at Redeemer as like the, I think he led the midweek urban ministry. Okay, yeah. A yeah, there's a, there is a, sure there's a redeemer pastor here. There's a lot of, of us evangelicals here. Greg Thornbury is here. The Nequists are here, you know, David Gunger, whatnot. And it's a lovely community. Really and I don't, I don't think any of us are actually like confirmed Episcopalians, but we're here mm -hmm. because there's some interesting uh, educational programs that I think appeal to our own kind of theological journeys. However, one thing that's been interesting here is been interacting with, um, this this episcopal ecclesiology you know when when you there's there are all kinds of downsides to these big hierarchical structures where you have pastors and you know rectors and bishops and archbishops and all of the all of the things that go with that you can argue all of the downsides yeah. and yet one of the upsides is you don't end up with a lot of mark driscolls <laughs> <laughs> right, because the pastor will really quickly uh, take care of that business. Uh, the, the bishop, the bishop like will come down on that. It seems like there's, like, if I was, if I saw my church growing, I would be so overly sensitive to not wanting to fall into all the different temptations and traps that come from being a famous, large organization leading inspirational speaker. Like it's surprising to me that these guys are just not worried about all the, the clear traps that come from being a mega church pastor. Like I would be so, if you, I would be so scared that I would be the next statistic of a pastor that I would want enough people that loved me enough to say, Hey, you're an idiot or Hey, you need to repent of this. It's just, it, that was the biggest thing to me is that like, how could you lead such an organization with little to no accountability. It's, it's, it's bad. Well, I, you know, I think that's why, in, you know, I was a pastor, I was a teaching pastor at a mega church, uh, for four years. And, uh, I can tell you, I felt it myself. When you stand up in front of 3000 people, 4,000 people, it does something to you. It's intoxicating. You suddenly begin mm, to it. read your own press clippings, right? Because people are always telling <laughs> you how amazing you are. And um, the same thing, by the way, it's another liability of my job. One of my biggest yeah. uh, sins, character flaws, is ego. It's arrogance. I think most of my close mm. friends would tell you the same thing. Uh, 
Because when you you log on and people are telling you how good you are, when people are liking your posts, when celebrities are sharing your work, you can read your own press clippings too. And uh, there has to be intentional mechanisms to, to tie you down. And so for me, I've had to have friends who I constantly am saying, tell me, where am I, where are my blind spots? Where am I messing up? I have a Jesuit spiritual director um, who speaks into my life. I have a counselor uh, who's, you know, more charismatic. We do listening prayer together. He, he speaks in my life. Both of them, very different perspectives, by the way. One who comes from a nation spirituality, mm. one who comes from this kind of Azusa Street Pentecostalism. I have people here in my own community who are evangelical, who are more mainline, who they all have permission to speak to my blind spots. And I know a lot of pastors out there, they're complementarian. They're in a pastor-led mm. church. They have been at the top of every pyramid in their life for 20 or 30 years. They're the leader of their home. Mm-hmm. They're the leader of their church. They have no mentors. They have no people who are walking them in accountability. They're always at the top of, their, of the pyramid. And I just don't think, believing what I believe, I'm not a Calvinist, but believing what I believe about, about the nature of depravity, uh, I just don't think, I think that that is just, uh, it's just one of the riskiest kinds. I'm not going to say it's good or bad. It has, it has benefits and it has liabilities, but it seems to me it's one of the, the riskiest kinds of church polity out there. Yeah. And as, and as an Enneagram three, like I, I just get so scared at that prospect because having just a taste of having mainstream news sources talk about me. And the feeling that comes from like, oh, people think I'm so funny and that I've that I've created this thing that nobody else thought of and celebrities want to talk to me and hang out with me like that just in a minute level feels so good to the point that it's scary in that like if I was in their position, there would be a without accountability or without a board of elders, I could totally fall into some of the same things, I think. Yeah, that is. Yeah, I think that's exactly Uh, right. Yeah. So it's just, it, it behooves all of us to have a group of people around us that know us enough to be able to speak truth into our lives, regardless of if you're a believer or not. I think that that is, uh, is true across all forms of belief, in my mm-hmm. opinion. So, um, so moving on, I know we're running, running out of time, but one thing that an additional thing that I've, I've struggled with as processing through this account is the, it's just the idea of getting wealthy purely off of a career based on preaching or writing or speaking about the gospel. So a lot of people will come up in the comments for my post and say, I'm, I promise you he's not taking money out of the offering plate, but he's probably spending his money that he, his or her money on money he's made off of writing books or speaking tours. And those are his labor of love. And the thing that's come up to me and people just accept that um, as a, as a, legitimate response. Like to me, it's like, is God just 100% good to go with us getting wealthy off of speaking about him? And I haven't, I haven't found a good answer yet, but it seems worthy of asking because shouldn't like everybody, we should do things with excellence, but shouldn't, I just can't see God being 100% on board with us just getting mega rich off of his words. What do you think? Well, I, you know, the one thing I, I, I try not to do unless, unless it is on the scale of clarity in terms of like biblical passages, it's so crystal clear, you know, like if it's like, if a husband slaps his wife, I go, yeah, God's not cool with that. I, I, I'm pretty solid on that. Uh, on this, on this issue, it's a question of degrees, right? How much? I mean, Mm. if you've ever looked at like the global rich list online, um, you can go in and type how much money you make and it will tell you how rich you are globally. See, so a lot of this is, Mm. is, is, is relative. Like there are people listening to this who, you know, you make $70,000 a year, uh, and you just think you're kind of average, but you're actually rich. So what happens right. is, is you, there's a tendency to want to scapegoat the guy who's next to you. So what I don't know is, is, okay, 
how much? Is it $100, $1,000, $10,000? Like how much is too much? I yeah. don't know. What, what, I, I, what I do either. know is, I, I will say, that, that we often don't bring up, and part of this is because these are often conversations had with evangelicals, and evangelicals are often ahistorical, and their epistemology is often a-traditional. So we don't think a lot about mm. church tradition. We're just like, well, well, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Amen. Let's go home. Let's go to the, let's go to Golden Corral. So, so that's sort of the evangelical epistemology. That's not my epistemology. So I, I always want to bring into the epistemology, not just the biblical witness, uh, but the biblical witness, by the way, that's always present. That's always important to me. But then also bringing yeah. in history and church tradition. Well, when we look at that, I think what we say is a few things. One, uh, the earliest preachers of the good news began with Jesus, right? We don't want to run to Solomon because right. uh, that's where people always go. We run to Jesus, you know, so, the man who had nowhere to lay his head. We go to Paul who says, I could ask for money, but I don't. And so I don't ask for you to support me in that way. And yet a lot of his, his letters, if you study them critically, are, are kind of quasi-fundraising letters. I mean, even the, the, even the, uh, the Book of Romans uh, bears a lot of the marks of basically a, a missionary fundraising letter, even though it's deeply theological. Hmm. And so yeah. there, there's this tension. Early in the church, this would have been considered a bizarre thought, that you could become rich off of that. Uh, that shifts a little bit with pre-Constantinian uh, Christianity, but I think we do have to say that that what, when we when we're asking this question, this is not a question that would at all make sense in the earliest years of Christianity, and that begs a question: Does that matter? Um, now, I'm not saying Christianity should never change, but I do think it's interesting. You know, people who on other issues, let's say LGBT marriage, right? They'll go. Well, the earliest Christians, and then you go, yeah, but you drive a Bentley, dude, like the earliest Christians. And it's like, you know, you don't, you don't get to invoke history and church tradition into the conversation only when it suits you. So I think that we hmm. should begin to have that become a part of this conversation. Um, the question, what would Jesus do? Um, it's not just something that started in the 1990s on armbands. It was a question raised by St. Francis who took Jesus's words literally. And the people who read the Bible literally, I think, have to confront whether or not their perspectives on uh, pastoral wealth actually derive from the scriptures or whether they're a cultural creation. Mm -hmm. That's a, a very loaded question, I would say. And I don't, I don't know. And that's okay. I think, you know, I said this, I wrote an article for the Atlantic about um, discernment. And I said, one of the holiest phrases that, a, that a, a, a person can utter is, I don't know. We've lost the ability to not know. When it comes to a lot of the yeah. questions you're raising, I don't know. What I do know is, is that we should be asking them. What I do know is that we should yeah. be wrestling with them. What I do know is that we should knock and keep knocking, that we should seek until we find, that we should listen to the voices of people who are feeling discomfort as a result of these questions on both sides of the debate. I think these are worthwhile questions. I don't know the answer to all of them. I don't hear you saying you know the answer to all of them. What bothers me? What bothers me in this conversation are the people who say you don't have the right to raise these questions. That's what I reject. Right. Yeah. The, I guess the tough part for me is that I want to see an end state. And so like a lot of the, I mean, thousands of people ask me like, what's the purpose of this account? Or like, what do you want to see come from this account? And the honest answer is I don't really know and I don't see how this is going to play out in the long run. The whole, not just, not preachers and sneakers, that's probably going to fizzle away at some point, but the whole discussion around building wealth around the gospel and what we are to do with that in an appropriate way. I don't think anyone has an answer to that, but I, it, it's stressful to me to think about what's going to come from it. Because the lay, like intellectual laziness would say, look, the, there isn't an answer. 
they're just going to make their money. They're good communicators. They're good singers. They're good book writer authors, um, book writers. They're good authors. Um, just let them make their money and we'll deal with it in heaven. I don't think that's correct, but also there's just no solid answer yet. Well, and now we've come full circle, haven't we? Uh, because yes. we're back to the tension. The question, the right. first question that must be answered is, can you live in the tension? If the answer is no, well, you might as well shake the dust off your feet and, you know, block the account and move on. If the question right. is yes, then prepare to be uncomfortable. Uh, and if you stick around, you're going to be. There, there, there are going to be things that you're not comfortable with. And so I think so much of us, so many of us, uh, the challenge for us is to just sit for a minute. Don't rush to judgmentalism. Don't ju don't rush to your own preconceptions about, you know, uh, how theology sort of should apply to money or wealth. Just sit with this question for a minute. Look and don't look away. Listen and don't speak. And and get curious about these things and see what comes up. I think if we could get curious about these things, maybe just maybe. Something new could be birthed here, uh, but the unfortunate things—the yeah. fortunate thing with these types of conversations—is is there's such a lack of curiosity. Instead, it's just a bunch of of, yeah. of already formed opinions, um, a bunch of talking points from both sides. But I, where there is fruit, I think, is the people who are willing to live in that kind of liminal space in the middle. And quite frankly, that's where I am with this. Yeah, that's so good. Uh, I, we only got a few minutes left, but I wanted to change gears a little bit because you're not just a commenter on pastoral wealth, but you're, from my perspective, at least on Twitter, it seems like you are a more progressive voice around the evangelical church and all the kind of issues around that. Um, initially, I was going to ask you about the Southern Baptist Convention, but I think more importantly, what do you... I guess in five minutes or so, what do you think about deconstruction slash ex-evangelicals? And what is your, uh, I know I didn't tell you I was going to ask you, ask you about this, mm -hmm. so it's okay. If, well, if no, actually, it's funny you, you bring this up. In my book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, I have a whole chapter, and I bring in several different voices. Uh, Walter Brueggemann, who's an Old Testament scholar, Richard Rohr, yeah. who's a Franciscan Catholic mystic, and N.T. Wright, who's uh, an, an Anglican New Testament theologian, a Pauline scholar. And each of them speak about kind of this rhythm of Christian life and Christian thought and spiritual formation in the same way using different language. They will talk about it as uh, orientation, disorientation, reorientation, construction, deconstruction, reconstruction, uh, N.T. Wright talks about it using the metaphor of luggage. He talks about packing, unpacking, and repacking. And, and he mm -hmm. says, we often walk around with a bunch of locked suitcases bumping into each other. Um, I think the, the call uh, for those of us who are willing to be changed, to, to use uh, uh, Pauline language, not to be conformed to this world. You know what it is to be conformed to this world in a post-enlightenment era? It's to have all of your opinions formed and say, and, and just want to argue them. Not rather than to hold mm -hmm. them loosely, rather than to consider another opinion. It's to basically become the Fox News version or the CNN version or the MSNBC version or whatever it is, where you just become another talking head with your already formed opinion. And your job is just to argue your opinion and to become an apologist for your opinion because you've already got it figured out. You're right, they're wrong. And your goal in life is to show all the people who are wrong how wrong they are so that they can become right like you. Instead, yeah. I think we have to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And how do we do that? It's through going through this process of construction, deconstruction, and reconstruction. Now, conservatives get stuck in the construction phase. Somebody gives them a way of thinking, and uh, they lock down on that, and they say, don't challenge this. Don't touch this. And everybody who does becomes a heretic, right? I mean, that, we talk about a, a word we need to learn to speak from scratch. The word heresy has been emptied of all meaning. If something, if something <laughs> yeah. means anything, then something means nothing. And this is a word that's come to mean right. nothing. 
heresy has lost its historical meaning. It now just means anybody who disagrees with you. Now they're a heretic. And, uh, and what a shame that is, because that, that can be a very yeah. helpful word. Uh, but mm-hmm. that's construction. Construction builds, circles the wagons, right? You go into a new Calvinist church, try this. Go join a small group. And then after a few weeks, raise your hand and say, hey, guys, I don't think that we've really fully understood what salvation means. I don't think that we've really understood what sovereignty means. I think we should open that up for discussion. You know what's going to happen? They're going to take a locked suitcase and they're going to whack you right out the door. Because they've already (laughs) figured out what those things mean. They're no longer open for discussion. So there's there's, there's this kind of anti-intellectualism that keeps them in the construction phase, and too many conservatives are imprisoned in construction, in spiritual construction. However, mm. liberals, they get lost in the wasteland of deconstruction. Their whole life uh, derives meaning from pulling a brick out of the wall. And before you know it, they're yeah. sitting on the floor in a pile of rubble uh, saying, who can know? Who can know anything? Yeah. And they're right. lost. They end up typically, so many of my friends end up post-Christian, you know, in this, in this current constant state of, you know, existential crisis and angst. Right. And it's a horrible place to be. I mean, it's kind of a hopeless feeling place, I would think, like to say, because I've had the same thoughts saying like, who can know these things? Like there is no like actual answer to some of these deepest life questions and it kind of feels hopeless if you if you dwell on that too well and that's why that's why i think so many uh conservatives are afraid of deconstruction because they've seen so many liberals progressives who view deconstructions not as a means to an end but as an end in itself and that's a terrible right. place to be i don't want to be in that place so I think where, where Christians have to go is they have to honor the heritage of the construction uh, of the framework they've been given. And then they have to be willing to enter into the deconstructive phase to embrace the uncertainty of that. But I think the third phase, which is, is so many people on the left and the right are unwilling to go there, is they have to, to muster the bravery to enter into reconstruction, to find something solid enough to chomp down on, to hold on to, yeah, to, to begin to re-envision what Christianity should look like, must look like in this generation. Albert Schweitzer said, he talked about uh, um, every generation has reimagined Jesus throughout history for itself. And he says this, he says, indeed, that's the only way they could make Jesus live. And I think we have to do the same thing to constantly be rebirthing Christianity in our time, in our age. And that doesn't mean that anything goes. And it doesn't mean you just get to believe whatever makes you feel comfortable, whatever you like. It means doing the hard work of getting into community, to challenge our assumptions, to find out uh, who we believe Jesus to really be for us in this age. And then to go out and live that in a hopeful way. And so I am not a deconstructionist. I'm a reconstructionist. I want to take all of those bricks that have been protected by conservatives and that have been tossed aside by too many liberals. And I want to build a more beautiful place where we can all dwell with those bricks. And I think if we can do that, then Christianity will be stronger than it's ever been in the 21st century. Man, that's amazing. That's, that's a super inspiring way to put it. Um, and. I wish I would have thought of that myself. So, (laughs) uh, Jonathan, thanks for giving me some of this great info and insight here, because this is, I mean, the the self-serving part of this podcast is for me to learn because I had no intention of trying to grow in this area at all. But now that I've, I've kind of been forced into this position somewhat by you and your cronies, uh, I'm trying to learn as much as I can and try to grow in, uh, spiritual maturity and understanding about everyone's position on this kind of thing. So I really appreciate your insight on this and I um, truly value your opinion and all the research and experience that you have. Um, as we wrap up, what do you have going on in the world as far as your own production, your own career, your own content? What, 
how can people find you online and what are your, what kind of, uh, what books are you publishing or books are you pubbing right now? Where are you speaking? Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. Yeah. So I still do a lot of speaking, lots of preaching, lecturing in colleges. And, and, uh, I, I still love to write columns. I don't write as many as I used to, uh, because these days it's like the six degrees of Donald Trump. And after a while that gets old. <laughs> um, but yeah. I try to write at least once a month. I write, I'm a contributor for the Atlantic. I'll write for sometimes for, for uh, the New York times and the Washington post. And so people who follow me on social media, they'll, they will, uh, they'll see uh, those articles there. And I, and I am under contract uh, with Convergent, uh, which is an imprint of Penguin Random House, to write another book. And um, what oh, I awesome. really feel like I'm wrestling with with this book is that so many of us are out here fighting the resistance of some kind. And we're uncentered and we're unhealthy. We're not, we're not fit to fight. And... I want to figure out a spiritual path to remain sane in a world that's lost its freaking mind. And uh, that's what I really think I want to, I want to devote this next book project to exploring. That's, that sounds super interesting. Are you leading with that title? Uh, I, I don't know the, uh, I don't know the title. I was, a uh, originally the title was world gone mad. Um, but, uh, a okay. friend of mine is uh, now who sells a lot more books than I I do has a book coming out in the next year and that he unbeknownst to him uh, he did I, we'd never talked about this um, but he has that exact turn of phrase in his subtitle so that means I'm probably oh, wow. gonna have to change my title so we'll see we'll see what it's gonna <laughs> be you know these things they're they're always they're always in flux, but it's going to be a book. You know, there are a lot of people who have questioned. Um, they've got questions about my personal life. They've got questions about some of my struggles that I've shared briefly about mental health. Um, I've mm-hmm. gone through a lot of traumatic events in recent years that I've never talked about publicly. And uh, mm-hmm. those stories are all going to be there because in each of those places, God met me in those places. And I think that if we are all willing to do that hard work, God will meet us there too. And you know what this world needs? It needs people who've met God. And so that's what I really want to do in this next phase. I don't want to write the next anti-Trump or anti-evangelical screed. I want to do something that will really touch people's hearts. I've never done something quite like that before because that's what God's doing right now. God just keeps punching me in the heart. And uh, it used mm-hmm. to be, I, I feel like in the last phase of my life, I loved the Lord, my God with all my mind, but it was almost purely cognitive. And now in this phase of life, I'm really learning to, to love the Lord, my God with all my heart and with all my soul. And I want to write a book that's consistent yeah. with that. Man. Well, I look forward to, uh, reading that when do you have a, a deadline <laughs> well you probably get one deadline from my publisher uh we'll see <laughs> i'd love for it it you know realistically probably early uh 2021 maybe late 2020 but probably like early jan feb march 2021 uh but i'll start releasing bits and pieces maybe late next year um the the task right now is to write it that's step one yeah amazing. Well, Jonathan Merritt, I, I appreciate you taking the time, love your heart and uh, love the words that you brought to this conversation. I think the, the takeaway is that we should be willing to say, I don't know, but not be sit on our laurels. We should continuously fight to try to find the right answer that's based in scripture that uh, isn't just based on feeling. So again, I, I appreciate you having this conversation with me and hope to do okay, it Okay, that sounds good. I appreciate it. it is my pleasure as always. Awesome. Hey, y'all, I really appreciate you checking out the Preachers and Sneakers podcast. If you haven't already, please make sure you rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts as well as Spotify. Also, if you haven't checked us out on Instagram, we're always posting at Preachers Letter N Sneakers. And again, if you haven't checked out the Patreon, please head over there, patreon.com slash Preachers and Sneakers. There you get to support the pod. Everything we're doing at Preachers and Sneakers, we've got a lot of awesome content coming soon. So please keep an eye out. And thanks again, as always, for listening to the Preachers and Seekers podcast.
Thanks again for listening to the Preachers and Seekers podcast. Our intro and ad music was by our good friend Wordsblade. You can follow him on Instagram at Wordsblade. And also thank you to our audio engineer, Zane Callister, for making my voice sound way better than it actually is in real life. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.